it was a nightmare. It was an, it was a, it was a fucking nightmare. It was just diabolical, you know? So, um, I didn't have the language to really, or the know-how to admit complete defeat to them and say, guys, I just don't know how to stop. Welcome to Ultra Habits. Here, we go under the hood with our guests to unpack the minutia and to understand what processes and systems they engage or research that result in ultra-enhanced living. Hey folks, it is RJ Senior from Ultra Habits and thank you for joining us on another week. Now, this week, guys, is a bit different. I am joined by my buddy Toph Evans. For those of you that know him or don't know him, him and I actually had a podcast together back in the day. He is a lover of endurance sport. Yes, he too is a fellow sucker for pain. And many people don't realize he is my podcast editor. He is all things ultra habits creation. He's a person that I call two minutes before an interview, shit tof, the technology's not working to solving bigger and more complex issues. He curates the whole show for Motogo. And it is an absolute pleasure to work with someone that I have such a deep alignment with values. We have a very good friendship and it's great to have conversations that oscillate from anything personal in business and everything in between. Now, this conversation is one that has been in the making for a very long time. Toph has really urged me to do it. The Ultra Habits community has urged me to do it. And today we're here to talk about the evolution of Ultra Habits and the why. So this is a real personal journey as to how I got into the place where Ultra Habits became the next step, the next iteration, if you will, of myself. It talks to our why, which to be honest with you, for quite a long time, particularly the last few seasons, was figuring out myself through my how. That why has become much more clearer and I am now on a path to really create impact and I'm quite firm on how I'm going to do that. So this conversation is personal. Hopefully you enjoy it. Hopefully you get something out of it that helps you to find that deep meaning and how you are going to carry that into your life. What's going to be your medium? What is going to be your version of expression? which enables you to create impact in your world. Anyways, folks, I leave you in the capable hands of Toph, and this time myself. Hopefully you enjoy this conversation. I had a lot of fun with my buddy. And you know what? We're planning on doing this more often. We are going to focus on these conversations at least once a season, particularly focused on recapping learnings, the wisdom from the guests, answering questions from the audience, taking comments and really making this a collaborative piece with the audience, the guests, and us in the middle, driving that communication both ways. Anyways, folks, have a great week. Enjoy the show. Peace out. So why don't we give the audience a rundown as to what we're doing today? This is a bit of a different one, isn't it? Maybe I should introduce you. What do you think about that? Yes. Yes. Give some context. So for everyone in Ultra Habits land, I've got my good mate, Toph Evans here. We are doing a conversation together. Toph and I have done 
podcast back in the day together. And Toph is the man behind the scenes when it comes to Ultra Habits. He does all my editing. He basically manages me, which is not easy. Is <laughs> no easy feat, but he's the man behind the wizardry of Ultra Habits. So, Toph, thanks for for joining us, man. And uh, really, you've been the driver of this, um, although it seems like I'm doing more of the talking now. So maybe I'll just hand it over to you. Thanks, RJ. Yeah, I feel like we work really well because we have similar working styles. Um, and I feel like with this project, you're the front end and I'm the back end. That's probably the best way to explain it, don't you think? Yeah, 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 I think so. I think we're very complimentary, but I think what ultimately works for us is our work ethic and uh, is the same. So we're moving at the same pace, which is interesting, right? Because we've experienced situations before where we're not necessarily moving at the same pace. And that's probably more frustrating than the fact that you have to teach me how to use simple technology sometimes, right? Like we have a, a deeper value in terms of our work style, although our skills are different, if that makes sense. And I think that's why we work so well together. Yeah, but the skills can be taught. I, I find that the, in quotation, soft skills and the work ethic is something that I've we've probably ingrained and it could be part of a our our backgrounds like our ethnicities it could be like more of an immigrant mentality style but for the skills that can always be taught that's the that's the easy part and i've i've noticed for yourself that the your technology repertoire has has grown immensely because you're thrown into this deep end and there's no other better way to to learn. <laughs> but if, if we jump straight into it, mate, and if for everyone that's listening, we decided to do this episode to give essentially the backstory on RJ and the whole ultra habits movement, because it's, it's always good to know from the guy or the person, I should say, that started any, anything, a movement, a podcast, it's good to know the backstory or else like who's RJ and like, why is this all the stuff popping up? So if I jump straight into it, why did you start the ultra habits movement in the first place? Yeah. Something wasn't quite, you know, something wasn't quite being fulfilled in terms of what and where I was at, you know, like I think, you know, I do the business thing, you know, I'm an exec, you know, I do the ultra running, I do the family and I live a life of intention, you know, like I'm continuing to try to always shift the needle in terms of who I am. And so much of that is a bringing together of, you know, parenting, business, athletics and everything I do. I wanted to create a forum where I could express that, but also start to have conversations with other people as to how they were doing this. And I felt like whilst there were glimpses of the expression in things like LinkedIn or social media, I needed to realize it through a forum, through a medium, and that medium is Ultra Habits. You touched on something then about you've got business, you've got ultra running, which is how we probably know each other, and then parenting. 
what was childhood like for you? Because surely there would have been a, a turning point in the behavior to go, this is so important. This is actually so important as a dad as well. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in an immigrant household, you know, immigrants to the United States, and dad uh, had a cleaning company, and him and his brother started it, and they worked a lot. And so they worked a lot. Like, I didn't see my dad until the weekends, probably. And, you know, it was typical 1980s parenting, right? Like, it was kind of hands-off. He provided... I would say that <clears throat> reflecting on his modeling, the upside that I've got from my dad is a real strong desire to provide. And I will, I will always ultimately be there for my kids and my family. They will never fall. And my dad was the dependable guy when it came to the, you know, the last stop. You just knew he had shit handled. Probably the stuff that he lacked and what I'm interested in, you know, doing as a parent was the hands-on stuff, the conversations, the rearing, the molding, the shaping, the insights, the advice, the physicality that comes with expressing love. That wasn't there. Um, And again, I'm, you know, it's nothing, it's no blight. My dad is a product of his own experience, and I understand that. And so that was, you know, reflecting upon my childhood, there was a, a lack of engagement in terms of things that I probably needed, and I steered myself, and that was a disaster. It ended up being a disaster anyways. How did it end up being a disaster? Well, because I didn't have a strong sense of self and I had a cater to everything around me personality and a deep need to be involved and, and, and deep need to be included. I went towards negative influences and there was no strong structure or guidance or pull away from that. Does that make sense? Like there was nothing to tell me and to guide me through that process. So I ended up going towards influences that I felt would give me what I needed at that time. And given my physical constitution of being, you know, an addict and addicted easily to things that then led me down a slippery slope and into the hands of addiction, right? Could you say that because you didn't get, and I'm, this is obviously subjective, you didn't get your dad's emotional love that way, you're drawn to other, those other influences. Would you say that's true? Like that's, that's how it was like kind of molded? I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in 12-step recovery and I know people that have come from very good and loving families that ultimately still went down the path. So I don't know the how nature overlaid with nurture played out, but I can say that I, throughout the journey of my addiction and, and, and criminal activities in that life, I always moved towards uh, older men 
there was always a, a paternalistic figure, which is interesting. Uh, and these were generally men that were highly independent, highly individualistic, and they took me under their wing. Uh, and I thrived in those relationships. I feel like I'm speaking to a mirror. There is so much parallel with my own journey here. And I, I have a loving relationship with my dad and he's still together with my mom. And it's almost like as if he was emotionally constipated growing up and I couldn't get that. And I would always be drawn to older, these paternalistic figures, as you call it. Tell, tell, how old were you at this age when you first found these addictive influences? And what was the worst it looked like? Like what was the lowest point as well? I was uh, 13 when I first drank alcohol and I was immediately addicted. Like there was no, uh, there was no pause. Like it was, it, it cured something that I felt was broken. And uh, that took me quite quickly into alcohol addiction and uh, drinking alcohol at school, in class, getting caught in class. I just, I needed to be out of reality because I felt comfortable. Alcohol brought a glow and it brought a warmth inside uh, and it cured my psychological discomfort. And then I met drugs and then, you know, drugs being illegal, you know, it leads you into a subculture because you're already doing something that's against the law and therefore you're all hiding in this subculture. And that subculture then has certain influences that exploit the needs of the people within that subject, you know, that, that subculture, i.e. drug dealers. And so that's how I then went down that whole route. It wasn't like I'm going to be a bad person and sell drugs and exploit people. It was like, okay, I'm now in this subculture that is illegal. How do I uh, function within this subculture? And then how do I thrive within the subculture? And so that then took me down that whole slope of, you know, slippery slope of addiction to criminality. Uh, and then the criminality element ultimately became the main driver. Right. And the main driver of what, um, to thrive in in that subculture yeah well it gave me well what ended up happening was the 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 drug use it cured my psychological discomfort but then when i started to sell drugs because i needed to facilitate my own medication i started to gain a sense of purpose and power and i sense of control and identity which then ultimately became the bigger issue now in hindsight. So I, 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 there was two parts of the problem. One, I was an addicted person, but the secondary issue was I then developed and built a whole identity around, you know, being a dealer and, you know, all the, all the things that then brought me. It was as if you were needing belonging, you found it and you were, I guess, introduced to the wrong people. Um, so that when you found that guidance, 
but when you found that purpose, that was the guidance that you essentially were looking for. And so what happened from there? So you're essentially killing it in this, in the subculture of drug dealing. I'm not killing it because I'm not killing it because is entrepreneurial and commercial as I am. Um, because I had used for so long, I had developed a, a fairly comprehensive rap sheet. And when it, because I was a public person, you know, I, I had gotten in, uh, you know, a lot of trouble. And by the time I ended up giving up drugs as a user, I was already kind of well and truly known by the cops and had been in a, a lot of trouble. I think had I never been a user, I probably would have never been a drug dealer, but had I been a drug dealer without being a user, it would have been a very different situation for me. Um, and I think that was the difference in saying that I did pretty well, right? Like I didn't have to, I, I was living the way I wanted to live. And ultimately that was one where I didn't have to work. I was relatively free to do what I wanted when I wanted. And, you know, I could stay drunk and, 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 and just kind of irresponsible, you know, and, um, because deep inside of me, there's, you know, there's that, there's this beast. Even today, I can sometimes see it and be with it and I get glimpses of it. It's not, it's still there. This kind of, you know, not wanting to live by the convention, not wanting to live by the rules being completely interested in high risk behavior. It's all there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of how it was for me. Yeah. And how old were you at that point when you were starting to get caught? I believe you said, and I think you, you said you were in, in the Bay area as well. So mm-hmm. surely there would have been a pit, like a turning point for you to come to Australia as well. Yeah. I started getting caught when i became um so i i got on probation around 16 17 and you know initially started getting caught selling marijuana you know i was selling acid which is lsd uh, you know i was doing you know it was all retail like i was at the coal face as they would call it <laughs> and um and uh you know like i because I was using, I was also testing dirty a lot. You know, we had a probation officer. There's so many kids in probation in high school. Like they, the probation officer physically was there on campus. So you couldn't escape her. She was physically there. So she could rock up in your class at any time and piss test you. Like it was a disaster, right? For someone that was trying to, you know, marijuana took, huh, uh, you know, a few days, several days to get out of your system and, and speed, which I was addicted to took two to three days and I'm piss testing randomly twice a week. So it's Russian roulette, right? Like I'm trying to avoid her. I'm trying to just keep my head afloat. And so I'm in and out of, you know, juvenile hall for a combination of, you know, marijuana possession, uh, amphetamine possession, as well as using testing dirty, which, you know, I get, every time you test dirty, I'm getting thrown in there for two to three days. Right. Like it's just, it was a nightmare. It was an, it was a, it was a fucking nightmare. It was just diabolical, you know? So, um, 
I didn't have the language to really, or the know-how to admit complete defeat to them and say, guys, I just don't know how to stop. But that would have been interesting to have that conversation in the courtroom because the judge liked me, Judge Easton. He liked my mom and he knew I was a good kid. We're all, I mean, all kids are good, but he knew that, he just knew something. And uh, it would have been interesting to just, open up in the courtroom and tell them, look, guys, I just can't stop. <laughs> I just don't know what to do. They keep locking me up. But is that the most effective way of dealing with what I'm actually going through? Unfortunately, I didn't have the courage or know how to have, how to actually have that conversation. So what did you tell them instead? I just tried to hide it and, and beat it. Denied beat the it. system. Okay. I tried to beat the system. You know, I'd go in to do drug tests and I'd have, uh, you know, someone else's urine in my Coke can and act like I'm drinking the Coke and go in the bathroom, pour it in there. Or, you know, I take drinks and supplements that help you pee dirty or clean. Sorry, I would try to, it became a game, high risk game. Um, but I didn't know how to not use, even if I had a drug test the next day, it didn't matter. Well, there's this conditioning of four to five years that you've built up, right? Since you're 13 and it would have obviously adapted over time. Like that's what you had known back then. When was the moment that you started to get, because obviously you've, you advocate this a lot. Um, I believe you were more than 10 years sober. What, what was the turning point for you to actually turn sober? I mean, yeah, I was 26 here in Australia and, you know, the kind of arrival here in Australia was a culmination of uh, some, some pretty heavy stuff in the U S Anyways, I came here and my alcoholism got really bad and dark. And now I'm in an unfamiliar place and, uh, you know, I'm going out every night drinking, starts off fine, you know, and I fly into rage. Next thing I come home battered and bruised. I wake up in the morning missing chains or missing, uh, you know, just, just, you know, like, you know, black and blue in the mirror, you know, black eye, bloody nose. You know, I, I, I break out into uh, uncontrollable tears randomly when I'm drinking. I just, it was just, I, I think I started to have a breakdown and I was moving more into rage. And, um, you know, like I was at a rock bottom and I think I was on my way to death. You know, I don't know, through either suicide or drink driving and killing myself, but I was dying. Um, and I got into some other trouble here in Australia. And I just couldn't bear the fact that I had left the U.S. only to come to Australia to now get on the same path. And I knew I just had to stop. And I had a moment of clarity. And a moment of clarity. Yeah, that, that aha moment, the penny drop. And what, what was that like turning sober for the first time? Because you, you talked about how essentially drug dealing gave you a sense of identity. You're going to drop that because that's what you've been, or at least being involved in the substance abuse scene for the last 12, 10, 12 years. What was that like shedding that skin? Well, the upside of coming to Australia was that identity had already shifted 
And so, I mean, you bring up a really interesting point. The upside of coming to Australia was I had to now function within the, the normal world, right? So within two months of coming to Australia in 2008, I'm a sales rep, an inside sales rep at a major multinational global company living in Brisbane in an apartment with a legal job. And I haven't kept a legal job for more than a week ever. And so that identity of the dealer had already been shed, right? So now there's a new identity is the sales guy that's trying to be a sales guy, but I'm still an alcoholic. Now, you bring up a very interesting point because by the time I decided to quit that alcohol in 2010, I then was provided an opportunity in business by um, uh, a mentor and, and now a, a, a you know a deep friend of mine to re-evolve or to evolve that identity into a business person. So there are two things that happened when I decided to get sober. One, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, but then I was also presented a new opportunity of a new identity. And that was one of a gun in, uh, in, in the selling world, right? Like in, in, in business. So someone saw something in me, again, a male, older male, uh, very good at his craft, excellent within his craft, you know, highly independent, highly autonomous, highly capable, saying to me, you've got what it takes. And so that was a new offer of being something better than the identity of a drug dealer. So I, I cap off what you've asked me with this, when moving from one identity or trying to move away from an identity, there has to be a better option. <laughs> you have to move towards something. You can't, you can't move from identity X to identity unknown. Hey guys, just wanted to quickly thank you for watching or listening to our show. It's through your continued support that we are able to scale this thing the way we have been. If you haven't already, please go to www.ultrahabits.co. Keep up to date with everything that we are doing, everything we are going to do, and you will find some really interesting information there that will help you with your habits. Anyways, back to the show, guys. Enjoy. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. It's it's as if you've there's <laughs> as weird as it says, like you've used the transferable skills of what you learned in drug dealing and you've applied it to business, but in a more healthier manner where the risk is not going to jail or losing your life. It's doing it to essentially make your life a bit better, make your life better, make an impact in your space. And talking about identity, I had a conversation with a friend the other day and she mentioned that when she was five, I feel like we, when we're all kids, we always get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? She still got asked that and that stuck with her and she still got asked that in her thirties. And it essentially gave her a bit of this existential crisis because she's like, I don't know what I want to be. She had a conversation with a mentor in her forties. So she's in her fifties now. And she told him about the story and he said, why don't you flip it instead of who do you want to be when you grow up into what is the life you want to lead? 
because what I've noticed, I found that so profound. It's our character traits and our values may slightly tweak as we get older because of the different things that we come across in life. We get partners, we have kids, we just our entire outlook and life changes. So who we are as people will probably eventually they'll slowly mold, but that doesn't affect the titles of the roles we are in our, in our vocation. Right. And when I see that, it doesn't change the identity and like, there's no like proper existential crisis with, with identity. I just found that so interesting. And it's almost like in, in the best RJ spin possible, what you said, I, I find like there's a correlation with that. I think the key there is, and this is where it's challenging, where children don't yet have a set understanding of their values. You know, like once you become connected to your values and also children have a unique, I see this with my son just going through it with him yesterday. Like they have and their need to develop an identity and their their need to be part of a collective far supersedes their need to live by their own values and to develop their values. Like they don't know that, right? Like there's no, a four-year-old or five-year-old doesn't know what their guiding principles and true North is. And if you try to have that conversation with them, they, it'll go right over their head for them. It's survival being part of a, a pack and, you know, being accepted and who am I and, starting to label themselves. Like it's interesting to watch my four and a half year old. He goes into character a lot and then it like develops these kind of mini identities based on these characters he's going into because he's trying to figure out who he is. Right. And that's part of the human struggle. That's part of who we are. Part of what self-actualization is is moving beyond that. And the quicker we can do that to your friend's example, the quicker that we can become value orientated versus, and that's in the form of how do I want to live? Then we start to dictate our reality. We become more unshakable. And that's what I'm trying to teach my son as well. You know, we're actually going through it right now, right? Like, but it's, it's hard and it's complex and I can't, I have to kind of let him go through his process of needing to be accepted and part of, and because he doesn't yet have the confidence to be value driven versus uh, what right now he's not value driven. He's collective driven. You know, he's like, okay, you know, uh, my identity's based on what others think of me and, you know, the labeling and all that kind of shit, right? Which ultimately is not the best way to be. It's interesting because there's still a lot of adults that act like that. There's the people that I find they're just kind of off with the fairies. Don't, don't you think so? Oh, uh, yes. I think that, um, and I don't know, yeah, I don't know if it's good or bad, but what I guess what is bad is, these adults are the ones that are training our kids, the kids of tomorrow. And that's where the concern is. It's incumbent on people that are trying to be aware and value driven to implement the way they, and the way we live. 
and in that way we can be the change that we want to see in others you know so yes hypothetically you have someone listening to this right now and they're like rj i'm i still don't know what i stand for what what is some practicality around that that people can go to f- f- at least have a closer a closer look at what their values are or at least if even if they're not 100% bang on at least they're in the right path a lot of it is deep self and continual self analysis is to understanding what moves us all of us are moved by something we need to understand what that is not what we think it is because a lot of the times what we think it is is more conditioning around what we think we're supposed to be moved by versus what we're really moved by and what we're really moved by we'll know if we look at our lives and look at where our interest and curiosity lies and i think that if a person doesn't even know that yet you have to get curious and experiment with different things, right? Once we start to experiment with different things, we start to push ourselves, we start to learn, develop the learning mindset. And that learning is learning of, you know, our, you know, our physicality. So moving our body, getting fit. Fitness is great because fitness pushes our mind and spirit and forces us to become introspective and to really understand our why and you know like to look at why we're doing something because it's physically hard there's an existential existential hardship when we get physical and we push ourselves which makes us question and that's where that unpacking and those you know that self-analysis is starts to occur or we start to learn we go back and study we really need to do things that start to shift the needle from where we are today to where we want to go and get us thinking and that will then ultimately unveil what's important to us bang on man love it brother what t- tell me more about the whole executive development because that's essentially what the t- that's the audience you're catering for that's the tagline in the ultra habits uh logo why did you want to cater for for that is it because of you're in the business world or did yeah. you see uh, a need for it no, I I don't know if there's a need for it, but for me it was again expression of where I'm at. Interested in understanding how to bring the best I can into my business game, parenting game, family game, societal game, uh, my physical game, spiritual game, and really understanding across the world as to what movers and shakers in this space are doing themselves and you know you only have to go on linkedin and you can see everyone's thinking about it and so it made sense um but for me it's a product of my own interest it wasn't really about serving others first i wish i could say it was it was more so about serving my own interests and my own curiosity and then backing that other people had a similar position which has obviously been been true and real i noticed you get an absolute thrill when you interview the people that you interview because that they embody that to a t how has the journey been like you've done i think i edited the 47th episode yesterday and it made me 
reflect and realize, wow, you've actually come pretty far. And me too, to be on this journey. How, how has that journey been on interviewing some of the smartest people we've ever come across? And they're probably some of the smartest people in the world as well. It's been really interesting to develop these relationships. It's been a learning experience for me and one that I try to implement into, I don't try, I do, into the business I do and with my family. And, um, you know, it helps uh, shape my views. And it's been great on a personal front. It's also been great to be able to facilitate this information for others as well. Uh, It's been hard. A lot of sacrifice has gone into it. You know, I'm up doing this stuff very early every morning. A lot of sacrifice. I don't, I don't race anymore. I still run. It's still trail run, but not near as much as I'd like to or want to. But if I look at what's needed and what's more purposeful, it's this. You know, like I, I, I get the utility out, utility out of trail running and and I, the trails I live there, right? Like I can do that. Now, competing and training to be race fit, does that offer more utility than facilitating this podcast? No. You know, like it, it's been a lot of sacrifice, but one that, you know, my wife Tilly's all for it. And she, you know, a lot of this means that it's hard for her too at times, right? Because I'm doing this in the morning, like instead of maybe being at home, at 6.30 or 7 a.m. or 5 a.m. or whatever, right? Like it's, but it's been extraordinary and it's now evolving into my my life's work. It's going to be my life's work. It is my life's work. That was so beautiful to hear it all come around full circle, especially with the childhood that you that you had. Like what, what would you tell younger RJ now? A lot, uh, a lot. But I think I would have told a younger RJ to not be scared to tell people where he was at, at the time. I was very adversarial with my environment because I think it was like, if I tell the world the truth that I'm this hopeless junkie, would have encouraged him to be more honest to the right people. Where I'm at now, and the level of self-efficacy and confidence I have in myself is not where I was before. It's taken 40 years to get here. My environment will, my environment does not shape me. I shape my fucking environment before I wasn't like that. Mm, It's like a self-nurture. I love it. What, for anyone that's listening and they're like, that's great, RJ, but how do I, embody a habits-based mindset what are the the practicality we need to get very clear on who we want to be like what is our ideal self and then we need to get very interested in the how the immediate steps like like the doing right like how do i start to you know start to shift out of where i'm at that for me is getting involved in a learning mindset right so that means start to orientate yourself towards communities material that is moving you towards who you want to be you need to start to shape your world around where and how you want to be and where you want to go towards 
the the thing that I can offer people the impetus, impetus to do that, the willingness to surrender to the fact that whatever you're doing isn't working for you and that you need to surrender and give in to the fact that you need to shift your way of life. That I can't tell someone how to achieve that. Like that person that decides they want to lose weight and decides and just makes that decision from tomorrow to start waking up at 6 a.m. to go to the gym. I don't know what the recipe is to get that person to that point where they're willing to surrender to the fact that they don't want to live like this anymore. I can't, I, I don't know how to manufacture that. But what I can say is once you're already at that point of willingness, ultimate willingness to do whatever the fuck it takes to move towards who and where and how you want to be, start to get really interested in the communities and the, the learnings as to how those around you have done it before. What I do is whenever I want to embark on any new journey where I don't have the illustrative uh, uh, ha habits or insights or knowledge myself to get me there, I start to get involved in communities and I get around people that have done it. And then I look at what have they done to do that. And that, I mean, that's been a big part of this whole podcasting journey, dude. You know, and the ultra habits journey, like a lot of this shit is like, you know, is, you know, better than anyone. Like I had, I, I've got no idea, but I've had to get around. Well, what are the habits of people that have been successful in this space and do what they've done? But again, no one could have given me the willingness to do whatever it takes. I have that. You touched on something you can't tell, you can't give people the impetus and you would know this from AA. I would know this from men's work. It's okay to be the catalyst and the guiding light, but essentially the person has to flick the switch. They have to rescue themselves. We can't, and I've fallen down that trap where all I ever wanted to have is to be rescued um, because I, I don't trust myself. And I hear that when you say that, it's like, what can we do to be the guiding light to essentially push someone in the right direction, but they have to dig themselves out of the trenches themselves. And then that's, that's like true leadership right there, because if that causes a flaw in effect, they'll do the same thing and the same thing. So you're building a leader of leaders. That's, that's what I hear as well. I agree. Yeah. Tell me this, what, what's on the horizon for the ultra habits brands as mm. uh, from like a high level overview? Yeah, so we'll continue to evolve the show. The plan is to develop a learning platform, which would bring together different people within the ecosystem of Ultra Habits to share habits and facilitate those habits via a learning platform, right? So that's something that we want to do. A book is definitely on the horizon, more speaking. So... I'm part of a community right now that is helping me prepare to start to get into more uh, dynamic speaking events, start to really spread the message at a mass level and create some scale. So that's definitely on the short term horizon when it comes to ultra habits. And ultimately, ultra habits will evolve into a different beast of its own still habits orientated but right now 
I'm not going to talk about that. It's confidential. I get that. Man. Confidential. No, that's amazing. But before we wrap things up, I just want to say you're doing an incredible job, mate. And it's awesome to have context of your full story to see what is the impetus? What is the driver of where you are now? Um, I'd like to say thank you. Like, I look at you like a brother to me. I look at you like a mirror to me as well because we're there's definitely a lot of parallels and you're doing something incredible for the world. And I just want to say thank you for it. Thanks for the conversation. We got to do this again, yeah? Yeah, for sure, mate. How, uh, I guess anyone else is listening, but I guess how can they find this information? Is it the website? Like what's the go-to? Oh, everything's at the website, www.ultrahabits.co. Don't want to overcomplicate things. I am on LinkedIn, which is RJ Singh. Go to the website and that will always be one single source of truth in terms of what we're doing. Perfect, mate. Thanks for your time, young man.